0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Science Museum. Welcome uh, to How to Build a Virtual Human. I'm Roger Highfield. I'm one of the directors of the museum. And uh, I want to thank the Barcelona Supercomputing Center for that amazing film. In fact, uh, we've actually got uh, Fernando (coughs) Cucchietti and Guillermo uh, Marin here tonight. And thank you so much, guys, uh, to you and to all your colleagues for putting that film together. And in fact, it was a world premiere. So I think they deserve a big hand of applause for that. Thank you. So it's been really exciting uh, working on this project uh, with the Comp Biomed initiative. And it really beautifully complements the biggest project underway in the Science Museum, which um, is our 24 million medicine galleries, which will open in 2019. And they're going to showcase... One of the most important, if not the most important, medical uh, collection on the planet, put together by Henry Wellcome. Um, But tonight, we're not going to talk about the past, we're going to talk about the future of medicine. And I'm now going to introduce the producer of that movie, uh, my best selling uh, co author, uh, and also the leader of the five million euro Comp Biomed initiative over to Professor Peter Coveney of University College London. Peter.
1: Thank you uh, very much indeed, Roger. So I'm just going to talk a little bit to you about uh, the first part of that um, stunning uh, IMAX film, the, the part which relates to drug discovery And the future of medicine in terms of patient-specific drugs, uh, the problem is today the pharma industry tends to sell you a one-size-fits-all drug. That's their model. They have difficulty producing many more. The only way that industry is going to be turned around is by its ability to uh, design drugs much more effectively using computers. So. The approach that is adopted here uh, and and in the Complement Consortium is very much about trying to get uh, targets, uh, the the proteins that are the the translation from the genetic code that you saw into proteins. They have particular structures and shapes where they're active sites, and you'd like to think you can design a drug that fits inside uh, that target. The thing is, the target, though treated as a canonical or single shape by a drug company, usually varies dramatically from person to person. So what we have to use is much more sophisticated computational methods. This rotating animation is simply showing the protein with a drug sitting in it. Uh, The applications then come from the, the, the ability to flip from just designing the next generation of drugs by identifying the right... Uh, compounds that bind to the proteins and ranking them but also to flip to the situation where we know your own genetic code therefore we know the particular sequence of the protein that's the target and the question then is which drug should I administer and if that's going to happen in a, in, in a clinical context, this is very much uh, the future of medicine you have to get the answer very quickly. So the, the last slide I want to talk through here is about supercomputers. Probably not many other people say too much about them in, in this meeting, but I'm just giving you an example of the computational power that's required to get these decisions delivered within a few hours. If, you, if you're familiar with a laptop which might have four cores on it, these calculations typically use for a single compound to calculate how strongly it binds to a, to a protein, 7,000 cores, and maybe take six hours or more to process, that'll be 42,000 core hours. You have to use very large-scale computers here in order to deliver the results. And incidentally, this whole movie is the product of supercomputing as well. Not only the sequences that you've seen displayed as nice animations, but the compositing of the whole thing itself took four terabytes of data and uh, about half a year of CPU time on one of the Nostrum. Uh, Supercomputers over in, in Barcelona. So, with that, I'll stop and thank you very much. Thank you, Peter.
0: And now uh, over to uh, Virtual Hearts with uh, Professor Blanca Rodriguez of the University of Oxford.
2: Thank you very much. Um, so, so who is not scared by reading the side effects of the medicines we're taking? The problem is not the side effects that are known. The problem is when we are taking a medicine that leads to side effects we don't know about, like, for example, antihistaminics that can lead to sudden cardiac death. So industry and um, industry and regulators are keeping, trying to keep us safe and trying to detect what are the side effects of the, the medicines before releasing, uh, releasing the medicines to the market. The way uh, we currently do that is usually through animal testing and clinical trials. We know that those can go very wrong. And uh, alternative approaches using experiments in vitro testing are also being developed. You probably are aware of stem, stem cell-derived uh, uh, cells, for example, for this purpose. But uh, one, one method to test medicines is through computer simulations. And this is something that is really um, at the forefront of research in this in this. Um, in this arena. What we're doing in Oxford and in collaboration with Barcelona and within this project is developing uh, uh, computer models of the human heart. And you can see here that we do that through collecting information from patients. And you see some some of the images we use them, we use uh, to uh, construct uh, anatomical models of uh, different human hearts with different disease conditions. And we use supercomputers to simulate the electrical and also the mechanical activity of those hearts in order to understand disease, but also to try to test how medicines would affect uh, those particular hearts. Um, We we are therefore constructing populations of human hearts that we are using to test the safety of medicines. Um, And of course, this is very challenging and uh, includes a lot of going back and forth uh, between experiments and, c- and clinical data to assess the credibility of these models, but we are currently already collaborating with industry in, in the uptake of these methodologies to uh, understand uh, the safety of the medicines better and earlier on. Um, with this, I want to introduce the next speaker, uh, Marco Conti.
3: Thank you Blanco. Um, one of the top-class airplanes like this one, the Airbus A380, has four million parts. And in spite of this amazing complexity, today we can simulate almost every single function of this airplane in a computer before every sing- one single bit of, of the computer is being built. So many years ago when I graduated as a mechanical engineer, uh, and I worked for some time in simulation like this, and then I was exposed to bioengineering. engineering in my naivete. I said, well, we should do the same for the human body. It shouldn't be too difficult. Well, it turned out to be pretty difficult indeed. Uh, uh, let me give you some number here. Uh, pretty much everybody knows there are 20,000 genes, um, but uh, um, there are 90,000 proteins. A lot of proteins. But uh, proteins almost never work alone. They work at least in pairs. And so this combination go up. And then there are three, 30, 40 trillion cells. Million of million of million cells. And the last number is the one that impressed me more. For every cell in your body, there are three times more external organisms. Microbes, other things like that. Some are parasites. But many are actually essential for your body to work. What an amazing complexity. So it was a long journey, and still we are at the beginning. But we're starting to get close to it. My field is musculoskeletal biomechanics. And today, (laughs) we can predict the force expressed by every single muscle in this young man who is dancing La Macarena. Now, you could wonder why we should do this, that's a good question, but we can do even much more useful. Uh, we can predict what is the force required to fracture a heap of an elder lady affected by osteoporosis. We can calculate the forces being transmitted in the pelvic floor of a woman during childbirth and predict in which condition there is a risk of damaging the muscle which will create a lot of problems later in life. Uh, And we can investigate uh, what is happening even in smaller animals like the mice we study in in laboratory experiments like the one Blanca showed. So no virtual human yet, but we're getting very close. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you, Marco.
0: And now over to our final speaker on virtual blood vessels, uh, Professor Alphonse Hoekstra of the University of Amsterdam. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, let's talk about blood. I
4: know it's scary. As children, it scared us, at least me. When I had a little drop of blood on my finger, I would run to my mother, Mommy, Mommy, blood! And she would take care of me. But we shouldn't be scared of blood. Blood is beautiful. Look at this movie. You actually see the red blood cells flowing through an artery and you know, being a scientist, I can look at these things for hours. Blood is important. It transports oxygen from our lungs to every part of our body. All the cells that Professor Vici Conti mentioned. Blood also contains other very important cells. The orange things that you can see on the screen are actually the white blood cells that are part of the immune system and help us defend ourselves against invading parasites or microorganisms and the green bits are the platelets these are the things that help us in the blood clotting if we have a little wound somewhere we have been putting this in the computer we have been modeling this we're building virtual arteries these are let's say the virtual organs that in the end make up the virtual human and You can look here at all the arteries in a human body that we can now put in a computer, and then see how blood is transported from the heart down to every single part of your body. We can also zoom in, look at the middle part, where we go into, in this case, the arteries in your brain and look at the condition that is really life-threatening, a little aneurysm that may or may not rupture. And by doing these kinds of simulations, we can hopefully in the future predict when you are at risk or not. And we can even look in much more detail, and these are just flowing cells that you see in the other movie. And this helps us to understand how these individual cells are transported to little parts of our body, and to see, for instance, what would happen if a medical device is implanted, whether there will will be or not will be thrombosis, little blood clots that can, again, be very threatening if they are transported in your bloodstream. Beautiful. So what is it good for? I'm a scientist. I like to make these things. But what is it good for? I would say we really want to better understand all the blood-related and induced diseases that you don't want to have, for sure. But if you have them, we want to help your medical doctors to choose the best treatment options. And we believe that the virtual human can actually help in that. And finally, we believe that with the virtual human, with virtual organs, we will be able to find better treatments for you. As Professor Vici Conti already said, we're definitely not there. We're working very hard to further build the virtual artery, the virtual human to achieve these goals. Thank you.
0: Thank you So we're going to have a brief chat, and then we'd love to open it up to the audience uh, for questions. Um, I want to start off by stepping back from the virtual human and uh, putting it in context of other work that people in the audience might be familiar with. So there's two buzz phrases at the moment, big data, artificial intelligence. And there's an approach that says, we're just going to take your DNA data, your genomic data, We're just going to look at big patient populations, see how how they succumb to disease, how they fare in this circumstance, that circumstance. We don't need a virtual human, guys. We just need uh, a deep learning neural net algorithm to churn through this data, and that'll pick out all these correlations, and we we don't have to build a digital doppelganger at all. So come on, Peter, explain yourself here. Why do we need a virtual human?
1: (laughs) Funnily enough, Roger, I think I remember <laughs> writing a paper on this topic, <laughs> and you were a co-author. <laughs> <laughs> this is the, the, the paper is called Big Data Need Big Theory 2, and there were more than in the life sciences and medicine, because everything you've been looking at here has a strong time dimension, temporal dependence to it. The idea that with Richard Dawkins, we would believe that if we sequenced one's entire genome that maps out your blueprint from birth to death is something that very few people take seriously other than the molecular biologists which are very reductionist. You only have to think of Dennis Noble's view and the point that genes are tend to dance to the tune of s- things going on at higher Dennis levels. Dennis
0: Noble is one of the great architects of really the virtual heart and, and so on. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: what The problem then is that the quantities of data you might need to gather to build a database that could somehow correlate between the genome and this phenotype of all the other biological manifestations is truly enormous and it's not really been appreciated how large it needs to be and it will not contain the structural characteristics of the problem. Here, it's statistical and inferential as well. Here we're talking about data from specific individuals that's captured and then merged with a model which is based on mathematical representation, that then performs calculations that predict something which is very specific to the individual. To some extent, they're complementary. One can do correlations initially with big data, but to really deliver a personal solution, you need personal data for the individual. You can't work with inferences based on how other people respond.
0: So it's a bit like weather forecasting. You need theoretical understanding of know How the atmosphere system works, but you need to keep on pumping in real time data from right. satellites and so on to really predict the future of the weather, of yeah. the climate system. Yes, and so on. very
1: similar yeah. to that,
0: actually. And so, but, and Blanca, in terms of where, where we are right now, I mean, can we take um, a virtual heart and do something that is clinically useful, uh, or is it all just still just around the corner and a few years away?
2: So, so there are there are some recent examples of uh, people trying to, for example, predict whether a specific treatment is going to work in a specific patients. So that's already happening. It's 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 still research, even though translational.
0: So this is kind of modeling the whole heart yeah. and, and its electrical behavior. Yeah,
2: yeah. So that that type of research is happening, and uh, and it's research. It's not it's not clinical uh, still. And w- another area that is quite advanced as well is the one I mentioned in which uh, drug companies are using computer models to try to evaluate whether the, the drug is safe or not. And that's also happening, and I- there's a big push by regulators. The main problem is they are, u- the, the, they are using animals uh, to test the safety of drugs, and animals are very different to humans. So at least with the computer models, we, we are using human data to predict side effects in human. So we have that competitive advantage, and that's happening at the moment as well.
0: So Marco, you you were involved in an earlier initiative, the Virtual Physiological Human. How how much has things progressed since then?
3: A lot. A lot. Uh, For example, um, between 2015 and 2016, the U.S. Congress and the European Parliament both wrote a recommendation for their regulatory body to say you must use modeling and simulation in the testing of new drugs and new biomedical products. Before then, it was not possible to use a a computer simulation as an evidence of safety or efficacy. Uh, This is very recent. It's happening now. But now every company in the world is trying to understand how this new type of innovation that Blanca was describing can change the world. And in the meanwhile, you know, we don't wanna use animal experimentation, not only because it's ineffective, but also for ethical reasons. And again, modeling and simulation is the master road to get away from animal experimentation. So Alphonse,
0: you, you talked about the being scientific about this, and we're hoping to use uh, these models to predict um, in a way that maybe is less familiar in the sphere of medicine and biology. I mean often when, when people talk about predictions in the medical sphere, they're talking about big populations and percentages of people tend to do this and this subgroup tend to do that. But here we, we mean it in quite a different way, don't we? This is this is exactly
4: true. I mean w- there are two important buzzwords, I think. One is called personalized medicine and the other precision medicine. They're the example of the drugs which drugs to target your specific disease given your genetic makeup. So I I believe that we will be able to make the virtual human not represent the whole population, everybody in this auditorium, but really a, let's say, digital digital copy of you. And you can actually ask whether a specific treatment would work for you and not the efforts of a population.
0: So let's just see where are we at the moment in, in that journey? I suppose there's two issues One is getting the theory right, and uh, and there's some technical issues about integrating theory that works at different levels of description. And then there's um, how to... We we can't have the average MD having to summon up uh, a supercomputer for a whole weekend to work out uh, treatments. So wher- where are we on, uh, who would like to pitch in on the theory side of things in terms of getting enough understanding at enough different levels and enough different organs to, to simulate a whole body?
1: I mean, I would just say that the idea of a virtual human is something that's incremental. Based on modeling and simulation, you can always improve your models and your simulations. To some extent, parts of it are there now. You won't be able to ever say, It's finished, but the idea is you can address different levels of this at the moment. Ultimately, we'd like to connect it all together, and that's the long-range challenge. The heart studies tend to be bereft of a lot of the molecular detail. The molecular side of things sometimes isn't connecting up to higher levels, but still, as a version, we could call it a Google body as opposed to a Google Earth, you can already conceptualise what that would mean yeah. for each individual and to be able to do things with that.
0: In fact, it's an issue that really people don't... Uh, we'll move on to the hardware, but one of the issues that people don't talk about much in science is the multiscale problem. I don't know whether you just want to give give the audience, just s- without going to the h- horrific complexities, but it's hugely neglected in discussions. And well It is <laughs> difficult. Explain
3: <laughs> it, yeah. Well, multiscale is a bad word, Uh, The word is not multi-scale, the word is continued. Uh, But we are able to look and measure things in a finite number of ways. So we, in order to understand the complexity of nature, have to chunk it in the large, the medium, the small, the very small, but then we need to stitch them together and that's where it gets tricky and that's where really the, the tip of the research in, in computational medicine today is. So you can imagine, for example, with the brain,
0: um, we're looking at the cooperative activity of loads of brain cells, but then you've got these amazing ion channels with individual charged atoms zooming in and out, and to connect activity at that level with a happy thought is a non-trivial problem, isn't it? Well, oh, Alphonse, you're it. smiling, I think you've cracked it. <laughs> <laughs> really? I did. I did. I, I can't.
4: I can't reproduce it. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but this is called complexity science. It, it is really. It is unbelievable if you think about it that you have this whole collection of neurons where, if you look at it from the molecular level, uh, we have all these ions moving in and out, and then you zoom out and you have a happy thought. So somewhere in between these scales, this happy thought emerged. And, I mean, we are, as scientists, I think, just scratching the surface of what this really means, despite the fact that we have huge projects, and there's lots of research going on in brain research or all these things. But uh, I think,
0: you know, this is still a quantum leap we have to take. So, what about the hardware side of things? Um, I mean, there are amazing advances in computation in general, um, with just computers getting more and more powerful, but there's also a suggestion that there's a new kind of computer out there, quantum computing. We're just beginning to talk about that seriously. Is that the kind of kit we need to move this from a thing where you need a supercomputer in Germany
1: to something that a a doctor can have on their desktop? Uh, The issue of where you do your computing is becoming increasingly irrelevant. Old-fashioned in the age of
0: the cloud. How could I have asked that question? (laughs)
1: That's the point. uh You don't need to have the resources adjacent to you. In principle, you could be able to call on them in some ubiquitous cloud. The cloud that exists today is a poor reflection of the large supercomputers. It can't cope with some of the big calculations we were describing. But progressively, it will be able to do that. Quantum computing is another game, completely, which holds great hope. It's very difficult to build such machines especially when it depends on your understanding of a theory, namely quantum mechanics, which has elements to it which aren't agreed. You need to be able to keep your system in a quantum state, preventing it from collapse and so on. So there are difficulties building such machines at this stage. But what we're doing today with these large supercomputers within 10 or 15 years will be available to people on their mobile phones. So that's the type of progress that we're
0: talking about here. So, Marco, you want to... Can we get? Can we do the virtual Macarena on our mobiles in a few years' time?
3: Yeah, probably. But <laughs> more important, <laughs> more important, I, I want to challenge something you said earlier. Uh, we can't have the doctor use the supercomputer. Well, actually, we can. I mean, you don't realize that a lot of things you do on on online on today, in reality, behind the scene already involving an amount of computational power, which is probably similar to some of this, just to move, you know, to exchange uh, tweets with your friends or things like this. It's just that, you know, you don't have to be a nerd to use it. <laughs> so that's the point. We need to break the barriers. We need to make this type of simulation so easy to use, so robust, so reliable, that they can be used by any doctor in any working environment what happens behind the scene? Who cares? Uh, that's, th- that's a problem for the nerds. You've got your yep. digital
0: doppelganger. Th- are you saying that actually you'd like to democratise this, so you would be able to try out diets or other interventions or, you know, low dose aspirin and so on without bothering the doctor at all? You just do it yourself. Ah,
3: that's that's a delicate question. <laughs> <laughs> ah. No,
2: but, but I mean, but it touches on a very important point, which is how to make this technology available to 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 others, not just the scientists. Yeah. And there are ways of doing it, like developing software that is very easy to use, GUIs, um, web pages that can run the simulation, where you can interact, portals where you can interact with the supercomputer. So this is not so. I mean, our, our colleagues do it so it's it's something that can be done and an industry can develop around it for me the The problem is more if we want to personalize treatment, do we have enough information about that person mm-hmm. so that we can create a model that we would trust to develop this treatment so T- or to test that treatment so it's, it's another ta- the technicalities I think we can work around them. And in
0: consistent th- information because yeah. I know it's people yeah. like Craig Venter with yeah. um, human longevity they're trying to uh, gather large amounts of, of routine data where you can compare like with like across, and that's a non-trivial thing even yeah. in the health service. But
2: models like these ones can help help identify what are the key properties we need to know about if we want to personalize the treatment, so it can also go on the right. other side mm. and say, if we really want to make this model personalized to this patient, this is the type of information we want, we need to get, and that's also another use of the computer simulation.
0: Well, I think we're going to open up to the audience in a, in a couple of minutes, but just finally, I'd like you, each of you, to give me a prediction of what you, th- where we will be in a few years' time. Um, so, Alphonse, when are we going to have that, uh, have a, a and talk about a virtual human just in the first loosely integrated group of virtual organs representing an individual patient. What's, what's your uh, best guess? That, that's
4: the hardest question so far, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, if you look at, 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 at small pieces, uh, uh, the, the example of a virtual organ uh, or a very specific artery in my heart that will be around maybe already now. Mm -hmm. If you make it bigger and you say, listen, um, we have a virtual human that looks a little bit like me, well, I don't see that coming very soon. So somewhere in between, we will be able to actually use it to do Mm -hmm.
0: not only interesting science, but to apply it in clinical settings. Marco, do you want to
3: be a bit more, just just within plus or minus six months will be fine, actually. So in 10 years' time, <laughs> I'd like to wake up in the morning, switch on my whatever computer we'll have at that time, and my digital twin would appear, and we would start a very difficult conversation about h- what I have to do to lose half a pound that day. <laughs> so I would say, can I have breakfast? And say, oh, no way, you can. <laughs> but if I don't have the cake, well, maybe yes, but not too much sugar in the coffee. This, this is the future for me. You know, bring this thing in the real life of the people. It's difficult. It sounds easy. It's incredibly <laughs> difficult. Behind the science is enormous, but that's that's the type of challenges we need to give ourselves. Blanca,
2: well, I mean, th- that prediction is is very hard. But for me, the the the, the main contribution we're gonna have is if we really embed these computer models and we combine them with experiments and clinical data to further our understanding of the human body. And through that, develop this uh, virtual human eventually. But if we make that contribution and we, for example, reduce the, the, the number of animals that are used to drug development, I think is a huge contribution, even if the virtual human never happens.
0: So, Peter, as the boss of this €5 million initiative, you will have the definitive answer. So the last (laughs) word
1: to (laughs) you. I'm just going to confine myself to telling you (laughs) that we work very actively here and now with pharma companies because of the computing power that's becoming available and the ability to demonstrate in the way I presented earlier that we can make predictions that are reliable and, as I say, actionable, People don't need to spend so much time making huge quantities of these, of these compounds to test. And that's going to do a lot to fact, shorten give the give development Give audience side. a sense, you know, okay, to using
0: traditional drug discovery development methods, how long and how much does that cost? I mean, the
1: average is around 10 to 12 years, and it costs two to $3 billion. Dollars. It's been growing. Uh, uh, the, s- the cost has been growing very, very rapidly. The output's pretty static. In fact, At an era which is post-genomic... And we're supposed to have all these understandings of individuals who could be treated separately. We're doing uh, the one-size-fits-all. An an unkind person might say that the conventional model is a bit broken. It is, certainly. The pharma companies know that. And the only way they will end up changing is by using this kind of technology. And that's happening right now. We're talking to them all the time about what can be done, where the resources are to run these type of calculations. So in the next five years, I think there could be some interesting things happening in that space. The flip side of that coin is making decisions for, for patients on which drug to give them when they present in the clinic. And that has regulatory hurdles, but the calculations are still of the same genre. So this could be taking, having traction within the next five to ten years. And when will you be gazing at a digital Professor Peter Coveney? Um <laughs> Well, I, I think y- the question of when there will be the first virtual human is behind that. And I, I was thinking that that's really rather like what happened when the first draft of the Human Genome Project was announced. That turned out to be Craig Venter's uh, genome. So the issue here is who's going to be the first person who's, who's got a virtual human representation, their digital doppelganger, which will be replete with their geno- uh, you know, their genetic makeup but all these other biological levels. Someone will get there first, and it will be an interesting thing to look years, at. 20 years? 30 within, within 20 years, yeah.
0: Okay, fantastic. Well, look, let's open up now to the audience. I think we've got a couple of roving. We're recording tonight, so it would be nice if you could hang on for the microphone to come. Who's itching to ask a question? Put your hand up. Um, so we've got, um, oh we've got a whole thicket. If we can pick these guys off over here. Uh, there we are. We've got one right at the top there and one just down here as well. One at the top first, fire away.
5: Hi. Um, Thank you. Like, obviously, the research is incredibly fascinating. One of the questions that I have is it's very easy to Mm. imagine how this would work for something that works rather crudely, like cyclophosphamide or statins, whereas now, actually, the drugs that we're developing are more moving towards biological therapies or... um, Cell therapies, uh, which means that those therapies are more influenced actually by what's going on in the human body at the time. So, in fact, like I might be more similar to someone, and like having an infectious disease at the time that I've been administered the drug. So, how capable would this virtual human or the the computing behind it be able to input that information eventually and second question obviously you're very dependent on the basic science advancing so is there you know a movement by you to kind of really push also the funding bodies to <laughs> encourage the basic science to to continue Thank you.
1: Uh, I mean, wanted to take your last point, uh, I'm completely in accord with that. Everything that we've described, the way we're doing this work, is really like doing physical sciences and engineering. Marco sort of alluded to it initially. It's the idea that you do have a model, some representation of the system, and you can make predictions based on that. Now, the idea of modelling with theory is is relatively inimical to biology and and medicine. There tends to be an idea of just collecting measurements and hoping that you will then infer something from it. If you're going to follow the route we're describing here, those people who carry out laboratory work have to buy into the value of modeling and simulation and have to understand what data they need to collect. It's not a question of, oh, just keep collecting more and we'll put it through a machine learning algorithm. No, understand the kind of data you need. You don't need so much of it, but you will then assist the development of a model which can be tested and potentially falsified and improved, and it will continue to interact with the observations. This is what's happened in the physical sciences. You only have to think of the Higgs boson discovered in 1963 as a prediction and then verified 50 years later, or Einstein's prediction of gravitational waves. It took 100 years and then Turing's prediction of uh, structures uh, in of the chemical basis of morphogenesis. It took 50 years before anyone verified that experimentally. But they were making predictions and famous papers. The problem in biology and medicine today is very hard to publish work which is predictive. People want you to do experiments and explain what you've observed. That's not the way this is working. It depends inherently on predictions that then you believe and carry actions out. So it's a fundamental issue.
2: Can I, can I ma- mention something about basic science as well? So obviously what we presented today is, uh, is the shiniest example that we would have. But behind that, um, what's happened is that basic science ca- has combined computer models and experiments. And it's basic science research that underpins all the knowledge we have Integrated in these models, so it's it's definitely we couldn't live without basic science for sure.
0: I think we'll move on to the next uh, question. of fireway. I think we've got to activate okay. the microphone. I
5: can shout. No, no, no. That's <laughs> fine. You're on. You're <laughs> Hello. On. Um, yeah, the film was really amazing, and the research is also amazing. Um, I just wanted to ask. Right now, you s- you spoke about a virtual copy of ourselves. Um, but what about sort of growth? Because obviously we're not going to stay the age that we are. We're not going to have the same effects that we're having now. So where in your research are you taking that into account?
3: Uh, Actually, a lot of the application of this type of technology, early application of this type of technology, are in pediatrics. And the reason is because whereas for an old old man or an old woman, you can, as a first guess, assume that we're all kind of the same. Every six months, a child becomes different from himself. And this has an enormous mean impact. So there is a number of applications that we, we we are developing in pediatrics. So, yes, you're absolutely right. That is a fundamental area. In fact, there's a flip side of it, which is, you know, we, we
0: talk about collecting data on people to do, um, you know, to – to dig out these correlations through, you know, machine learning or whatever, but it's often a snapshot of a person at a specific moment in time. And our bodies are dynamic systems with cycles, endless cycles within cycles within cycles. All that complexity is lost from this primitive data gathering exercise. Which is probably what you're gonna say, Alphonse. No,
4: I, I wanted to maybe add to this that you know, this is again a beautiful example where basic science is very much needed because as we age, uh, all kinds of new physiological processes kick in and we haven't seen, you know, we have only seen a very little part of that. And it it is a very valid question because, you know, we all get older and older and older and new phenomena kick in that we haven't been modeling yet that even the basic science is not completely eluded. and we keep, at least I keep, amazing myself about the complexity of human physiology. Each time I'm, I'm, you know, flabbergasted by things that I see. But we have to put it in our models to make the virtual human
0: a reality. Let's get a couple more questions. I'm slightly worried I'm neglecting this side of the audience. There's a chap there, and there's a there's another chap just over here. So they're racing. Oh, there we are. Yes, there we are, right next to you. Yes, go on fire away.
3: One of the very scary topics we keep hearing is
1: about the post-antibiotic uh, era, which um, is almost on the other side of the scale, where it's sort of it w- would potentially affect everyone. Uh, do you see this work um, uh, contributing towards that and trying to maybe alleviate some of those problems by having per-person antibiotics, in a way? Uh, I can take that. Yeah. Uh, So the generic problem there is the phenomenon of resistance. Uh, It it occurs in bacterial infections and and viral ones. So the development of drugs, which I said could take 10 years and $2 billion comes about and then the organism, that's the pathogen, finds a way of uh, defeating it. The issue is something we are addressing in these methods that I described earlier because it occurs also in cancer treatments if you repeatedly give a patient, a particular drug, they they develop a mutation. Then you have to look at the secondary uh, treatments that you have to give these people. And you can use the modeling methods I'm describing, I was describing there, to try and identify new drugs that will evade the resistance mechanism of of the pathogen, which would apply to the antibiotics as well as it does to these other cases. So that's one route to try and address this.
0: There are actually some very high-level, sort of simulations done by people like Martin Novak, uh, showing that you need cocktails of drugs to to deal with, um, you know, cancer evolving endless mutations or um, resistance and so on. In fact, we have a superbugs exhibition opening uh, in a couple of months' time, so which will be on this very subject. Let's have the next question just up here. This is going to be successful. Um, so as a consequence of this, is the role of the GP redundant? and going to end up like the farrier and the blacksmith. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, are you going no, to th- throw them. loads of poor <laughs> <four laughs> GPs out
3: of work? Come uh, on. Uh, okay, let me do a prediction. <laughs> okay, like a magician, no, not a, as a scientist. In five years' time, the opinion of the expert will come back. But not only medicine, everything. You know, we live in a time where it looks like every idiot can write an article. We don't need a journalist. Every guy can self-diagnose us. You know. I, was, I was looking for a very weird nutritional supplement that has incredibly complicated effects uh, in the human body. And just Googling, I found that there's a bunch of guys that are bombing themselves with this stuff because they read that it could extend their life and they're doing escalating, do- they're doing a phase one clinical trial I- at home. This is madness. <laughs> this is absolute madness. So the answer is yes, we will need more GPs, better <laughs> GPs, better <laughs> trained. Technology is not going to replace the expertise. It's, it's empowering expertise. Actually, given how hard it is to see a GP, perhaps the answer is to have yeah, a exactly. virtual
0: GP. <laughs> That's what yeah. we really need. Anyway, let's have a couple more questions, uh, please. Any any more hands? We got one over here and one right over there, actually. I'm making sure our poor runners are running hard. To uh, oh, okay, we're, we've got two over here, but there's another chap over here, uh, far away th- at the front. Once here.
1: again, Thank you very much for the talks, and the speeches, and also the presentation. I'm wondering how
0: the virtual body reacts to acute scenarios. So. For example, people who have come in, perhaps uh, broken their arm, or they've been involved in a road traffic accident, and how something like this could actually be used in sort of acute modeling, and whether it would almost, like, react immediately, and how people would know what to do in those certain situations in terms of the models and, and medicine, really.
3: take acute scenario. Uh, just to be sure, you're asking if this type of technology can simulate an acute scenario, or if they can be used in an emergency medicine application, because th- pro- there are two. Uh, different pro- probably things. both, actually, because so, uh,
0: through <laughs> <Yeah>. like long-term <laughs> sort of
3: diabetes,
0: osteoporosis, <laughs> things like that, you can almost model them long-term. But for something that happens quite quickly and t- suddenly.
4: So I, I can I can tell you about uh, acute situations. We are currently working together among others with with scientists from Oxford, but also with. Um, medical doctors in the Netherlands, where we look at stroke, so acute ischemic strokes where people, you know, are hopefully somebody at home recognizes the symptoms, and then the clock starts ticking. And you have to be in the operating theater as soon as possible to get uh, the uh, the blood clot out of the, of, of the brain artery. Within that time, you can do things. And one of the things we would like to do, and, and this is really research. I mean I'm not claiming that this is anything we can already put in, say, a virtual human, but we would like to start running, once we have data on the patient, to run as much simulations as we can in order to help the people that have to make the decisions which treatment to give to do decision support. And you know this is probably not going to be the full blown mechanistic modeling that we have been shown here most probably this will be a beautiful combination between machine learning, data science, mm-hmm. and the kind of virtual human modeling you see here. So in these acute scenarios, we, we're going to see
0: very, very interesting developments in the next few years. Blanca, do you want to p- mention heart attacks and things like that?
2: Uh, f- yeah, I mean, uh, I, could f- I couldn't could imagine a, ce- a scenario. Actually, for example, in terms of drugs, simulating the acute effects of drugs is much easier than simulating the chronic effects, which are much more worrying. But of course, we can imagine a lot of different uses of these technologies in different settings, and, and it's actually for, for many scientists to fully develop those models, but a, a, a big barrier is in, in the translation of those models to clinical scenarios, and clinicians are very careful. In, 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 in testing new technology. So there is a lot of work that is not only about designing a new scenario where we want to use the models, developing the models, but then showing they can be very efficient and then uh, convince people about using them. And I think ma- hopefully m- many people in this audience will work towards those things.
0: Now, we had a question right up there, but there's a microphone. Uh, if you can rush over there, and I think there's a mic up there, isn't there? So fire away. Yeah.
1: Is that right? Yeah. Um, does your project involve simulating, apart from human body and drugs, proteins, interactions, models of infections, a- infections agents, and their impact on the body as well? So is it just drugs and proteins and the human body or infections agents as hmm. well? Yeah. Uh, it involves anything that's up for modeling and is capable of modeling <coughs> in, in terms of uh, – infectious disease and the immuno- immune response, that it happens to be something that, that we do work on, and it speaks to the comment I made earlier. In order to be able to develop models that are verified and validated, you typically have to have a lot of experimental data that currently the biomedics aren't measuring, because they're not thinking of the model it, uh, the, the system in the way that we need to be able to make predictions. What we are capable of doing, given all the right parameters, is predict, you know, the time it takes from uh, the pathogen infecting uh, the host mm. cell to the tr- transcription, perhaps, and then uh, or, or the decomposition of proteins that are made by the pathogen and export onto the surface of the cell uh, on these so-called MHC peptide complexes that then trigger an immune response when a T cell comes along. That whole si- system is very, very mechanistic and can be represented um, with a mathematical model. It has a lot of parameters in it which need to be known. And in many cases, I'm saying today, they're not. In some cases, you can use machine learning to infer what the sequences of peptide fragments you get when the the, the foreign protein is broken down will be based on the sequence. But that's never enough, because there's all this dynamical information. But those are part of the bigger picture here. They're sort of chemical pathway or
0: network models. Let's have another question just up here. Uh, I think there's a microphone up there far away. Uh,
1: hello. Hello. Okay. Uh, so we were talking about um, you know, using all this information to be able to much more carefully diagnose people with particular things and be able to treat them a lot better. But I'm wondering if uh, you know, what this information would be able to provide for external bodies and companies like Amazon for instance, would you be
5: able to Order something that had been 3D printed specifically for you uh, that would treat any sort of weirdness that you had in your body that didn't <laughs> need to be there? That's,
0: that's an oh, unusual one. Uh,
3: Conceptually and technologically, why not? I mean, I, I, the reality is that this is already true. There is a whole world of uh, uh, medical device for people with complex disabilities that are becoming more and more tailored, custom-made, 3D printing is becoming very important. So this is kind of a reality. Yeah.
0: Pe- people are beginning to 3D print so um, sort of prostheses and all sorts of things at the moment. So we're, we're
3: getting glimpses of that already, but aren't we? But, you know, uh, let me challenge you. I don't want Amazon to do this. <laughs> I want the NHS to do this. <laughs> Okay, look. Uh, I think we've got time for two more quick
0: questions, and then we'll have to wrap it up. I'm afraid. Um, gosh, we've still got quite a few hands here. I'm going to go right over this side, um, and right over that side <laughs> as well. The furthest extremity on each side. Um, and if you if you can keep it quite brief, that would be lovely. Yeah. Just just she's just here. Is there a microphone up? Right, oh You're yeah, gone fire away. You first, and then the
1: final question here. Okay. Um, wh- one of the uh, ways in which large engineering systems are created by humans is by people defining interfaces so that people, people work on modular aspects of the problem. Now, that if multiple groups in this world, in your computational biomedicine world, are going to interact and share information and create grander models, then there has to be the ability to interface uh, across different modules. So given that the body doesn't lend itself to modularity, who's going to, where are the candidates for where those interfaces can be defined? And also, who will be in a position to define those interfaces so that different work groups can work in different parts of the world and none that less combine to a grander model? Marco, do you want to? That's a tough
3: one. No, it's a very good one. the answer is yes, you're right, you're spot on. Uh, there are some groups that are focusing their work uh, on this specific challenge. Uh, first name coming to my mind is Peter Hunter and the Oakland Bioengineering Institute. They are trying to develop uh, uh, standards, uh, st- standard, standardized way to describe, um, for example, a, a cell model. Uh, there is a markup language called CellML that, that you can use to standard li- to exchange a, a mathematical modeling of a cell with another researcher across the board uh but it is very challenging and it, the reason is exactly the one you mentioned because we chunk nature but nature is a continuum i was saying before so there is a little bit of forceful intention in this dividing but y- yeah it it's a territory it's developing i mean it's uh it's coming slowly but it's coming okay very last question here because we're slightly over time
0: now fire away Hi then,
2: my um, question's just on money basically you mentioned the nhs and i'm just thinking the cost is this going to be trialed on patients first that can afford to pay for that kind of treatment because it sounds very expensive all this technology it sounds really great but the cost there who's going to cover all this
0: yeah it's only craig venter who will be to afford a virtual human basically What do you think, Peter, the cost of that will be prohibitive to roll this sort of thing out?
1: Um, Well, I mean, I don't want to be particularly controversial, but we've all noticed what happens when the WannaCry virus creeps across the world and the NHS is singled out for attack. Of course, it's not singled out for attack. It just is vulnerable because its IT systems aren't in good shape. And that's nothing to do with the amount of money that's put into the NHS because it's $1 to $8 uh, pounds per annum. It's not spent wisely, and the level of IT know-how in the NHS isn't what it should be. If we had the level of expertise of people to build complex systems in the NHS, people who currently work for companies like Microsoft or Google, people who work with me, go off to those companies. They don't join the NHS there's a lot of work that could be done to improve the basic infrastructure on which all of this could be based, and I don't believe it requires massively more investment. Thank goodness for
0: European funding, eh, Peter? (laughs) Oh, I think on that note, (laughs) 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 Um, I should just say, remind everyone, the guests of Comp uh, Biomed should head out the top of the auditorium or anyone who's got a wristband like this, and everyone else should head out the Uh, bottom, and you'll be directed uh, by museum staff. Uh, An enormous number of thank yous, obviously to the Barcelona Supercomputing Center for that amazing film, Emily Lumley for putting it together from the Comp Biomed side, Chris Scott, my colleagues at the Science Museum, and of course, Professor Peter Coveney of the Comp Biomed Center of Excellence, and all our brilliant speakers here. And finally, Thank you for those excellent questions and for being a brilliant audience. Good night. Thank you.